So Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Jonah's anger at the Lord's compassion. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort, and Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? Sorry, just straighten up, bit of OCD there. Uh, brilliant. Lovely uh, to be here with you all this morning. Uh, in my previous uh, role as a school chaplain, many of you know I was a school chaplain at a boarding school for about 10 years. Uh, in that role, I had the privilege over those 10 years of seeing many young people uh, becoming Christians. Uh, a good number of them didn't come from Christian homes, uh, and the first time they'd had the chance to hear about Jesus and what it meant uh, to be a follower of him was uh, when they came to the school that I worked at. And I always find it fascinating uh, that as I got to know these young people, as we discipled them and found out more about their journey uh, to faith, uh, we discovered that nearly all of them uh, nearly all of these new Christians had a granny, or a godfather, or a, a teacher, or an auntie or uncle, somebody in their life who we discovered had been faithfully praying for them. I remember in some conversations, uh, it'd be like, you know, the, the child, the young person didn't even know that that person had been praying for them until they become a Christian. They'd let that person know, and they'd found out that for many years, uh, that person, there was somebody in their life who had been praying faithfully for them. Each of them had someone somewhere in their life who'd be, been praying for them faithfully to come to know Jesus as their Lord. They'd come to Jesus because of a set of circumstances that gave them the opportunity to hear and respond. They were in a free country where people could tell them about Jesus. They'd had that person who sometimes, without them knowing, had been praying for years for them. They'd come to a school where we could freely talk about Jesus. 
But we've all wrestled with that big question. What about those people who don't have that neat set of circumstances in their lives? Those people who never have a grandparent praying for them? What about them? What about those people who are in countries where we don't have the freedom to proclaim the gospel of Jesus? Those who've never had the opportunity to respond to him? Is God actually selective in those he chooses to hear and respond to his message of salvation? Those who are born in a Christian country or one with religious freedom? After all, we know that God chose people. He chose the descendants of Israel to be his nation, his chosen people. You will be my people and I will be your God, he says. We also know that God is a God of judgment as well as mercy. So implicit, implicit within the idea of God being a God of judgment is that God will be selective in some way. Jesus makes it clear in Matthew twenty-two fourteen that many are called but few are chosen. He tells the parable of how uh, the shepherd uh, has a hundred sheep, but leaves 99 of them to go looking for that one lost sheep. Or he speaks of the narrow road to eternal life, which only a few find. God appears to be selective, exclusive about those he chooses to follow him. And yet, on the other hand, throughout the whole biblical narrative, we meet a God whose inclusive compassion, mercy, and love are encountered around every corner of the Bible. We meet a God who repeatedly goes out to seek and save the lost. He knows that the 99 are safe and so goes looking for the one who has yet to be found. This is a God who, according to John 3:16, loves the world so much, the world so much, all nations, all people, all races, all of his creation so much that he sent his one and only son so that whoever believes in him may not die but have eternal life. A God whose love is sacrificial and indiscriminate. So our paradox today, how is it that God can be indiscriminate in his love on the one hand and yet appear to be selective in those he chooses? And we're going to explore this paradox as we look uh, through the story of Jonah. Now, I love the story of Jonah for many reasons. Uh, for those childhood memories of my Jonah Bible storybook uh, with the big blue whale and the Jonah character dressed in a blue and, blue and black stripy dress. Did anybody else have a Jonah with a blue and black stripy dress? I did. Um, and his big beard sat in amongst all the rubbish inside the whale. Uh, and I love the story of Jonah because it's really funny, uh, especially chapter four, which we're going to look at more in more depth in a moment, but also because in Jonah we meet a prophet who is a bit of a mess, much like many of us. He's a mess. Have you ever noticed that Jonah is a completely successful failure? Jonah is a successful failure. Just think about it for a moment. The word of God comes to Jonah in chapter 1 and tells him to take this message of judgment to the evil inhabitants of Nineveh. But Jonah, unlike some of the other faithful people we've been looking at in this series, like Hosea and Job and Abraham, Jonah, he doesn't faithfully obey God and get on with whatever wacky, seemingly wacky uh, message God wants him to do, to share. 
No, he basically sticks two fingers up at God and says, you must be kidding. And he runs away and does his own thing and he runs off to Tarshish. And he finds a ship in Joppa and he jumps on board to get away as far as possible. And whilst on the ship, we know that God sends this huge storm. And these pagan sailors are all crying out to their own gods for mercy. And lots are drawn and and they question Jonah and Jonah admits that yes, he is a Hebrew. And he says this, I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And despite being pagans, these sailors are afraid. They put two and two together and they recognize that the storm that they're experiencing is this powerful God's judgment upon them. And so Jonah is thrown into the sea. But listen to what happens next. At this, the men, the pagan sailors, greatly feared the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and they made vows to him. Even in this moment of immense disobedience, Jonah's immense disobedience and failure, these sailors have encountered and recognized something of the power and the greatness of God. God worked despite Jonah's failure, despite his disobedience. These people, these sailors, they're not Jews. They're not from God's chosen nation. They're not even the people that God had sent Jonah to talk to. But through this encounter with Jonah, and and because the power of God is at work, God indiscriminately reveals something of himself to them, and God uses this moment for his glory. God reveals himself even to the unexpected people in the unexpected moments. I met James when he was about 25, 26, I reckon. Um, And James had come to the school that I was working at uh, as a school chaplain, uh, but it was before my time. Uh, He was one of those kids, evidently, this is what he told me about himself, he was one of those kids who was like the thorn in the side of all the Christians in that school. He he used to go to a Bible study in his uh, boarding house, but he did so not because he was interested, uh, but because he really wanted to wind up the teacher who was leading that Bible study. He used to just sit there and ask ridiculous questions and be disruptive the whole way through. And he left school and he made some interesting choices in his life. But along along the way, he ended up going to work at a school in India. He had an opportunity to go and do a sort of year or two at the school. Uh, But on the application form uh, to work at this school, it said that you had to be a Christian. It's a Christian school uh, in India. And he thought, I'm not a Christian, uh, but I know enough about Christianity that I think I can wing it and get away with it and nobody will notice that I'm not really a Christian. Uh, And so he arrived, aged about 23, at this school uh, to work. But while he was there, um, he met people who loved Jesus and lived their lives faithfully for him. And it was during that time that eventually he came to know Jesus as his Lord and Saviour. And when I met him, he'd actually rocked up back at the school I worked at to be a teacher, aged about 25, 26 
Um, and it was hilarious, the reaction of some of the other teachers who'd been there from when he'd been a pupil. He was the most unexpected person, first of all, to come back to teach at the school, but secondly, somebody who had fully given their lives to Jesus, having been the thorn in the Christian side at that school. Krish Kandia says this, Unlike Jonah, who ignored and disobeyed God, the sailors seek God. They find God, they obey God, and they pray to God. They confess to God and worship God, despite being from an unnamed and thus indubiously a non-chosen nation. We have our first clue here, that God's love and mercy goes beyond national and cultural boundaries. Is the God of the Bible as selective as he appears to be. But back to Jonah. Jonah has been thrown into the sea and he finds himself inside this large fish where in his desperation he sits and cries out to the Lord. And it's worth noting here uh, that theologians love to debate whether the account of Jonah is historical or something like a sort of slightly satirical fable. But whichever is true, whichever you believe, there is truth about God in this book of Jonah. And it's remained, the book of Jonah has remained part of the canon of scripture because there is truth about God's relationship with humankind in this story. So having been sat inside this fish for three days and three nights, Jonah is like vomited, it says, out onto the beach. And not surprisingly, after all that he's been through, Jonah gives in at that moment. And he goes to Nineveh and he warns the people there of God's judgment upon them. And how do they respond? We find out in chapter 3 that the whole city repents. It says this, The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. A moral failure of a city is saved by God's message through a failure of a Jewish prophet. A moral failure of a city is saved by God's message through a failure of a Jewish prophet. Jonah is one of the biggest successful failures in the Bible. Just think about it for a moment. How many Old Testament prophets got this sort of response to their proclamation of God's word? Most prophets in the Old Testament faithfully call nations and peoples to repentance at great risk to themselves, and they see very little change. And yet Jonah, this grumpy, cowardly, disobedient, unfaithful prophet, gets a full-scale revival as the whole city of Nineveh, including the king, turn to God and, and desperately plead out for him to have compassion and mercy on him. In the scale of prophet success, Jonah has won like the Olympic gold. He has spoken God's word to an evil nation and 120,000 people have repented and turned to God. This, you know, he should be a happy prophet, shouldn't he? But he's not. He is absolutely furious. And this is where we find him at the beginning of chapter four. And it's interesting, I think, that actually in the sort of Sunday school telling of the story of Jonah, Chapter 4 is often missed out or just washed over a little bit. But it's only when we understand what happens in chapter 4 that we get to the heart of who God is and his indiscriminate yet selective love for the world. We find in chapter 4 
a pious and judgmental Jonah and a merciful, compassionate, grace-filled God. We have a lovely silver Ford S-Max. We love it. And it's about 12 years old. And because it's 12 years old, it doesn't have an MP3 player or Bluetooth or anything like that, much to our children's disgust. Uh, They think we're in the dark ages. It just has a CD player and a radio. And so we often end up having the same CD going over and over and over in our car, being played over and over. And this summer, uh, the CD that we had in for most of the summer was the soundtrack to the musical Les Miserables. In fact, I reckon if you ask Alice or Finian, they could probably sing you most of Les Mis. Um, Yeah, Finian will do it in a full-on operatic voice if you want to as well. Um, But it prompted Zachary and I, my eldest child, because he's old enough, uh, to watch uh, the film of Les Mis that was out a few years ago. Victor Hugo's character, Jean Valjean, is an incredibly powerful character not least because of the way he chooses to live his life after the priest that he steals from uh, lets him go free. He lives as one who has been changed by the grace that he's experienced. And yet also through the film, uh, we have the character Javert, his previous jailer, the bitter, judgmental soul who chases him down, is not able to forgive, is not able to let go. He believes that Valjean doesn't deserve freedom, that he still has a debt to pay. Javert cannot get beyond himself, his own judgmentalism, to see the change in Jean Valjean. And Jonah is doing something similar here, and I think it's something that many of us actually do as well. Just listen to the end of chapter 3, as the Lord acts in mercy on the people in Nineveh, and then Jonah's reaction at the beginning of chapter 4. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, "'Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? "'This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish.' I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Jonah didn't run away on that ship to Tarshish because he was scared of risking his own life by proclaiming God's message to the evil people of Nineveh. Jonah didn't flee because he was overwhelmed with the task God was calling him to. Jonah didn't want to speak God's words to the people of Nineveh because he was worried about ruining his own reputation. No, Jonah is absolutely livid and furious because he knew all along that this would happen. He knew that God in his very nature is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And this meant that God had always intended to show the people of Nineveh mercy and frankly, Jonah had decided that they didn't deserve it. Jonah gets the heart of who God is. God is quick to forgive and not to destroy. God has pity on those in need. 
God, when he brings judgment, is not quick to bring condemnation. He gives every chance for people to come back to him, to repent and to be transformed by him. Because ultimately, God loves faithfully. But Jonah, well, Jonah thinks he, has set him, uh, thinks he knows best, and he has set himself up as the judge. Frankly, God's mercy doesn't fit with Jonah's idea of right and wrong. And he is absolutely furious. And he tells God um, that if, you know, things were, were going to go this way, well, he might as well just die. He is properly throwing his toys out of the pram. And he doesn't give up. We read in verse 5 of chapter 4 that Jonah goes out of the city of Nineveh, makes himself a shelter, and he just waits to see what's going to happen to the city. Now, I'm sure that any of us here who have anything to do with small children will have come across those moments when they ask for something, you say no, and they just keep asking in that hope that maybe you were meaning to say yes, but no, just slipped out of your mouth uh, by accident. You know, um, can I have some sweets, mum? No, you had sweets on Monday. You're not having sweets again until next Monday. But please, mum, you know, I'll love you forever if you buy me some sweets today. No, I've said no, you're not having any sweets. But it's so unfair. Everybody in my class gets sweets whenever they want them. You're not having sweets. Maybe if I just get 50 pence worth of sweets, I don't have to have a whole pound, just 50 pence will be fine. No, no. And they start again. Please, mum, please can I have some sweets. And Jonah is sat outside the city in his little shelter and is still expecting God to change his mind and do what he wants God to do. His impertinence is almost comedic. And then God allows this plant to grow over Jonah and to give him shade from the midday sun. And there's Jonah feeling all smug again, sat under his big plant thinking, oh, God's coming round to my way of thinking now. He's changing his mind. He's being merciful to me. He's, uh, you know, he's showing me grace. And it says in verse six that Jonah was very happy about his plant. And then God sends a worm, a worm to eat the plant. And the sun starts scorching his head and a strong east wind starts to blow. And things become all uncomfortable again for Jonah. Things are not going Jonah's way again. And so he has another strop and he declares, well, you know, if this is what, how it's going to be, I want to die. And then God says this to Jonah in his judgmental attitude in verses 10 and 11. You've been concerned about this plant Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern, or pity as it says in some uh, versions, for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left? God is saying, Jonah, listen to yourself. Listen to yourself. You're more concerned about this plant, about your own, your own comfort. And there is a city of 120,000 people who haven't heard the word uh, that if they didn't repent, they would die. God is saying to Jonah, you might be part of my chosen people, my select, but my mercy, my love, my compassion, it extends to all its indiscriminates. And I've chosen you to go and share that love and that compassion with the people of Nineveh. 
right from God's covenant with, a- with, with Abraham in Genesis 12, it's clear that God chooses one family, the descendants of Abraham, not to be the only receptors of his love and grace and mercy, but he chooses them to be a blessing to all nations. And this is not a new thing. God's love is wide. It's universal and inclusive. God's love is for everyone, even those who are lost. God's love reaches the nations that seem broken and corrupt. God's love is for the unlovely, the rebellious, the people who just take and they don't give anything back. But God's love is also selective in that God uses people who know him to seek and to save the individual, the lost. Why does God do that? Look at what Jesus says in his greatest command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. It's a bit like this triangle up on the screen. We're called to love God and to love others. We're not told to simply bask in the grace and loveliness of knowing God and stuff everybody else. That's Jonah's view. We're okay. We're the Israelites. We've got it sorted. And those people over there, those people that aren't like us, those Ninevites, those evil, disobedient, undeserving people, they don't deserve to know God and receive anything from him. But we're called to love God and to love other people and to be a blessing to them. And if I'm honest, I can relate to Jonah a little bit too much for my own comfort. And I wonder if you can too. Do we think there are people who don't deserve to receive God's forgiveness or love? Or perhaps people that are just too difficult for God to reach? Do you find yourself thinking, Something along the lines of, we're safe here. It's cosy and comfortable with people like us in this church. You know, I pray and I try to live for Jesus uh, in my work, in my family life. But really, don't ask me to go and share the good news of Jesus with them over there, whoever they may be. In fact, I'm not even sure that because of the way that they have lived their lives... I'm not really sure because of where they're from. I'm not really sure because of how they look or what they do or the choices that they've made that they deserve to hear about Jesus and to receive his love and his mercy and his compassion and his transformation in their lives. Krish Kandia, in his book Paradoxology, tells the story of Jabir Hassan. Jabir is a 32-year-old royal male postman who felt overwhelmed by the demanding postal route that he'd been given. And so he came up with a rather random way of solving his problem. He would wash and iron his uniform and put it on every morning. He'd shine his shoes and get in his lovely red uh, Royal Mail van. And then every day he would just dispose of some of the post he'd been given to deliver. He dumped some of the letters in the canal He burned about 400 more, and then with about 29,000 other items of post, he dug a large hole in his garden and buried them there. He couldn't be bothered to deliver it all. He looked like a postman, he looked the part, but because he wasn't actually doing his job as a postman, his actions denied his identity as a postman. 
If we're bearers of the name Little Christ, which is what it means to be a Christian, we're Little Christ. If we're co-workers with Christ, then we have to share out and live Christ, his love and his mercy and his grace. We need to be stirred into action to be God's hands and feet in the places that he's put us today, to love God and to love others so that people may know and have the chance to respond. Not just people like you and me, but yes, those who are different from us as well, those who make us feel uncomfortable, those who frankly we get nervous about if we see them hovering around outside the church. And yet, how are people come, come to know Jesus unless they've experienced his love and heard how much he loves them for himself? This church has discipleship and social transformation right at the heart of who we are. We really believe that God has called us to be disciples and to make disciples and to bring transformation to people's and society, society's life. But I, I think sometimes we can all be guilty of thinking we've got it sorted because it's all neatly there on a piece of paper we've agreed on, or it's there on our website, or actually because the church runs soul food and bees and teas and runs an alpha course, um, then it's all right, it's all covered. But it's not enough, because actually we should all be so filled with the Spirit of God that we won't settle until every nation, every person, every tribe, every tongue has heard and responded to the transforming grace-filled love of Jesus. Words without actions are worth nothing. So what of this question? How can God be indiscriminately selective? God chooses people not because of superiority, but because of his grace to be co-workers in the gospel. He chooses people. He selects people to be co-workers in the gospel. And that's what we all are. We're all chosen to be co-workers in the gospel. Through the story of Jonah, we see clearly that God expected the people of Israel to bless the nations around them. And we also see how God is indiscriminate in his desire for all people of all nations to know his love and mercy and compassion for themselves. God is sovereign. He is in charge. And he's called each one of us to be risk takers, to step out and join him on his mission, to join him in bringing his transforming love and grace to people's lives in this time, in this place, with the people that God has put us in contact with now.